0: Well, we are going to look at Romans chapter 11 this morning, starting in verse 11. We're going to look at Romans 11, 11 through 22. And so let's open up your copy of God's Word to Romans 11, verse 11, and read along with me uh, these verses that we'll look at in our time together. Romans 11, verse 11. So I ask... But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that is true they were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand fast through faith so do not become proud but fear for if god did not spare the natural branches neither will he spare you note then the kindness and the severity of god severity towards those who have fallen but god's kindness to you provided you too will uh, provided you continue in his kindness otherwise you too will be cut off and thus ends this reading of god's holy inspired and inerrant word well to open up our time after we've read that we're going to be looking at that text in earnest but i want you to turn to exodus chapter 3 to introduce the kindness and severity of god Now, I have a hard time balancing kindness and severity. For example, in in parenting, I have been known to call down with that get down here right now voice. You guys, if you're parents, you know what this voice is. For finding a solitary little sock on the stairs. And I hold that thing up like it is a greasy old banana peel. And I say, you know where this goes. And then I have to repent of my anger And I apologize to my children for being a little bit too harsh and angry and not being as patient as I should be as a father. At other times, I have given in to the pressures to let my kids play just 10 more minutes of video games or eat one more piece of candy. I really just long sometimes to be loved by my children, don't we all? It's kind of like that Bill Cosby sketch where he gives his kids chocolate cake for breakfast because it has eggs, milk, and flour, and grains in it. It's kind of like the same. And the kids are really happy about it, and they start to chant, Dad is great. He's giving us chocolate cake. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal little sketch, and it just is a glorious picture of what our hearts want as parents. We just want to be loved sometimes. We'll all do plenty of stupid things in the name of kindness, like give our kids chocolate cake for breakfast. There really isn't kind at all. You see, we have a hard time balancing kindness and severity because ultimately we aren't God. But as God reveals himself to us, it's always been both kindness and severity. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is tending the flocks of his father-in-law and all of a sudden he happens upon a very odd sight a bush that is burning without being consumed. So he goes to investigate and he's going to be confronted quite immediately with the severity and holiness of God, really a right fear of God. So look at Exodus 3 verse 4. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. But that's not where God ends, because we see immediately in the next verses the kindness of God. Verse 7, And then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. The whole account of Moses and and, and the plagues that that God brings on Egypt to deliver the people out of bondage in Egypt really is a narrative of the kindness and the severity of God, the kindness towards Israel to deliver them out of bondage and the severity of God towards Egypt. But then as God tells his people who he is and how he plans to work in them as a nation, we come to one of the most quoted passages in all the Old Testament. And so go ahead and turn to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, God, again, proclaims who he is in this passage, and this is a fascinating passage because this passage, which God proclaims who he is to really the whole nation of Israel, it happens shortly after the golden calf debacle. Now, if you've been in church, you understand what the golden calf debacle is. You see, God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, gives Moses, the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and the people are terrified because they see the power and authority and majesty of God, and so they say, you talk to God and not us, and we'll listen to you. Well, Well, Moses is up there for 40 days and for 40 nights, and he goes up onto this mountain, and they think, you know what, maybe he's not coming back. And so what do they do? They say, you know what? We're gonna try and worship God in our own way. And they say, you know, Yahweh, this God that we say has delivered us out of Egypt, you know, this God really should be like the golden calves we used to worship in Egypt. And so they come together, they make these golden calves and they worship the golden calf and dance and celebrate and think they're praising God by worshiping this idol, Moses comes down, of course, and he destroys the two Ten Commandments that he had, destroys the idol, and just lambasts this people for, them, for their idolatry. And it's after this horrible moment in Israel's history that Yahweh God tells Moses his name in Exodus 34, verse 5. Read along with me, Exodus 34, verse 5 so yahweh and moses has gone up on the mountain again yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of yahweh so yahweh passed before him and proclaimed yahweh yahweh i am who i am as he said earlier and so god starts with his kindness because he is willing to reveal who he is to them and he explains his kindness because it's intrinsic to his very being. And so he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, verse six, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast or faithful love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Pure kindness, pure undeserved grace, and forgiveness. Remember, this happens immediately right after the golden calf incident. And so God wants his people to know and to understand that he is a forgiving, gracious, and holy God. For it is not even at the golden calf incident that God says this generation has to wander the wilderness for a whole generation. Because he is a forgiving God. he's a kind and gracious God. But this is also balanced with pure and severe justice for the guilty again really this is part of the very name the very being of God for what does he keep on going on in verse 7 he says but I am a God who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." And so when confronted with this dualistic understanding of God's kindness on the one hand and God's severity on the other hand, the right response is always going to be reverential worship. And so what does Moses do? Verse eight, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. It's the same thing that he did when the burning bush incident happened. Because when you are confronted with the kindness of God and the severity of God, you can't help but worship that true God. to see that this is not just a Old Testament reality. I want you to also turn to Matthew chapter 10. You see, Jesus himself, the God, the Son incarnate, takes up the same idea that God is both severe and at the same time kind and gracious. that part of knowing God is to not ex- exclude. Elements of his or characteristics or his attributes. So first, Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 describes God as quite severe. Matthew 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body. In hell God is a just God God is a fair God God is a God who part of being God and fair and just is that you will be he will be severe and punish all sin but that's not the end because look at the kindness of God picked up in the next verse verse 29 are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You see, when we belong to God, we are his children. We are kept, we are preserved, and we are guarded with undeserved kindness. And so not to be outdone, Paul highlights the same tension frequently, really, in the book of Romans. So go back to Romans and go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I just want you to feel really the weight of the constant testimony of Scripture that God is both severe and kind all the time. And if He is not both severe and kind, He is not God. Look at Romans 2, verse 4. Paul writes, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness, his patience, is designed to lead you to, to faith and repentance, to turn and to trust in Christ alone for salvation. But if you see and experience God's kindness and then continue to live life for self above all else, if you continue to see God's kindness and neglect to humbly worship as Moses did, then you will only know holy, severe, just wrath. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so back to Romans. 11 again. And so Paul has been building this argument for much of Romans that God is both severe and at the same time kind. And so he writes, Romans 11 verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Now, there's a few things I want you to see about how Paul makes his argument. First, the word, the beginning of verse 22, is a fascinating biblical word. You might think the word now is, or, or note isn't very important, but it is actually a word that can also be translated look or see. Or maybe in a more archaic sense, the word can be translated behold. I bring you good tidings of great joy, right? That's the word, behold. And in the ESV, or the translation that we're using, the word behold comes 1,065 times. Uh, That's more times that the word behold comes than perhaps our pages in some of your Bibles. So I think God wants us to regularly look up, to regularly see him. Because I think God realized that that we have a seeing problem. We have a problem looking to God. And so again and again, we're reminded by God himself, look at who I am. And here we are told in order to solidify your faith, note, see, look at two attributes of God, his kindness and his severity. Recognize his gracious salvation and his just judgments see his glorious assistance and his profound opposition recognize his friendship and his fierceness sin god is not your buddy nor an ogre he is god if you fail to see both the kindness and severity of god you'll fail to see god You'll make up what you think about God, and so God's solution is very simple. Look, behold, take note of God's kindness and his severity. And so we need to ask the question then, where do we most fully see God's kindness and severity? Where do we understand that God is both truly kind and truly severe at times? I think we see it most clearly in his word. His glorious self revelation. So God graciously tells us who He is in Exodus 34. He shows us His character as the story of redemption unfolds. And every single narrative, every poem, every prophecy uh, in God's Word is given so that we can know Him. So we can look at, take note, behold, and see the kindness and severity of God. And thus rightly worship, learn to repent and be in a joy-filled relationship with our Creator. You know, that's why we, we covenant before God and men as we join our church that we will endeavor to maintain family worship and habitually read the Scriptures because we know how vital it is to behold God. To know God, to know His Gospel, we must regularly read the Scriptures. How many of you guys have heard of George Mueller? Okay. George Mueller is a 19th century evangelist and pastor, and he's known primarily for his work in setting up a lot of orphanages. Uh, at a time in which basically there was very little done to help orphans, he did tremendous work in helping establish orphanages in England. And he was really a perfect example of someone whose life was shaped by his careful attention to the whole of Scripture. You see, George Mueller notes that once he decided to focus on studying the Bible and not simply Christian books, the result of this was, and I'm quoting now, that the first evening that I shut myself into my room to give myself to prayer and meditation of the scripture, I learned more in a few hours than I had done during a period of several months previously. And he also said, for the first 4 years after my conversion at age 20, I made no progress in my Christian life because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole of Bible, not skipping the severe parts, with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. I've been reading the Bible twice a year since that day, and I have always and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus my peace and joy have increased more and more. You see, the key to this man's perseverance in the faith was very simply ongoing study of God's word. Your faith is shaped by what you look at. If you look regularly at the kindness and severity of God, perfectly woven together, the way the whole of Scripture weaves them together, then you will have a healthy, persevering faith that grows stronger in adversity and sweeter in prosperity. John Piper says, if you neglect the Bible, you will not see the severity of God and the kindness of God the way God means for them to be seen. You will not understand them. You will misinterpret them. And probably you will find fault in God and criticize God. his severity and take his kindness for granted and even feel deserving of it if our faith is to last and be strong we must look at the kindness and severity of God in his word so beloved that's the theme of our text this morning as God shows us what both his kindness and severity have meant for, for Jews and for Gentiles as we, as we walk through these verses, we're gonna be motivated to pray, and perhaps for you, th- these prayers will feel a little bit unusual. But these are the types of prayers that are borne out when you see the kindness and severity of God. So this morning we're gonna see four prayer requests Four prayer requests as you see God's kindness and severity. Four prayer requests when you see God's kindness and severity. These are four types of prayers that we offer. The more clearly we see how God works to establish and strengthen His church. How He hardens some and saves others. How God's plan for the Jews, His chosen people, unfolds in history. So our first prayer request is you see God's kindness and severity. Number one, gospel fruit from strange providence. We pray for gospel fruit from strange providence. We should all pray for gospel fruit from strange providence. Now you might be thinking, what exactly is strange providence? Well, providence normally seems good. Our catechism says, what is the providence of God? It is God's personal and powerful work guiding all creation to fulfill all his purposes for his glory and the good of his children. All seems good with God's providence. So when we describe some event as strange providence, it's because it's hard to see any good coming out of that event. It's not normal providence, like finding money on the ground or something like that. You might think, oh, that's great. Strange providence are things like the earthquake in Nepal that killed hundreds of people a couple days ago. The hurricane in Mexico that killed dozens of people. Events that we rightly consider tragic or evil fall under the category of strange providence. And as we look at verses 11 and 12, I think you'll see a typical prayer request that we need to learn to have in the midst of strange providence is that we really should pray frequently for gospel fruit, for gospel fruit. Look at verse 11. So I ask... Did they stumble in order that they might fall? And remember, Paul's talking about the Jews, right? Look back at verse eight. So God gave the Jews a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And so really, Paul asks, did they stumble? Did the Jews stumble in order that they might Fall, fall as in forever fall out of God's plan, as in suffer God's permanent rejection and curse is God's purpose in hardening the hearts of the Jews to never let them come to saving faith again and to fall away. So Paul answers that question very clearly, doesn't he? I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. By no means. And so really then the question is asked, what was the purpose for their stumbling? He continues, rather, through their trespass, that is through their stumbling, that is through their hard hearts and willful rebellion against God and rejection of Christ as Savior, it is through the Jews' trespass that salvation has come to the Gentiles as to make Israel jealous. And we'll get to the jealous part in the next couple of verses, but but please don't miss this rich and encouraging truth. Israel's rejection has simply served to open wide the opportunities for Gentiles and pagans of all different kinds and stripes to come to Christ. Now, hold it, you might say, how are these two necessarily connected? The hardening of the Jews and the salvation of the Gentiles. Couldn't God have saved the Gentiles without hardening the hearts of the Jews? It's a fair question, right? Of course it's possible for God to save the Gentiles without hardening the hearts of the Jews because God could do anything he wants. But with the Jewish propensity to circle the wagon, so to speak, to stay inward focused, even to stay centered in Jerusalem, God had to force them to go abroad and he did that by hardening the hearts of the Jews. You see, the early church for many years in the book of Acts was centered pretty much exclusively in Jerusalem. And it wasn't until the Jewish leaders who hated the Christians more and more and more so started to persecute their pastors, started to imprison their pastors, started to kill their pastors that the Jews then spread out into the surrounding areas. And it was as Paul, or Saul as he once was called, right, goes and is trying to persecute uh, Christians in nearby towns that we see really that this persecution wasn't in just Jerusalem. It was in the whole area. And so Jews really begin to spread all over the Roman Empire to begin to worship God. Jewish Christians uh, begin to spread out the whole empire to, to worship God. And what do they do when they go throughout the whole empire? Well, they bring the message of Christianity to the Gentiles, to everyone. And how did that happen? In God's providence, it happened because he hardened the hearts of most of the Jews to reject them and to persecute them. See, even Paul, as he's known as an apostle to the Gentiles, when you read the book of Acts, where does he always start his ministry? In the Jewish synagogues. And they beat him, and only after their hard hearts are seen does he take his gospel to the Gentiles. And even in Rome, the church seemed to be predominantly Jewish at the beginning of the church until the emperor banished all the Jews from Rome and then suddenly Gentile churches were all that remained overnight. And they thrived. So repeatedly, the point is clear. God hardened the hearts of the Jews so that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. So Paul 2 again repeats the same theme in verse 12, right? Look down in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles. And that certainly is true. God, in a strange act of providence, turned the heart of his people cold to expand the reach of the gospel and to fulfill prophecy. Prophecies like the one made to Abraham that said all the nations of the world will be blessed through one of his descendants. But also prophecies like Isaiah 49, verse 6. Prophesying to Messiah, God says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49, verse six. Did you pick up on that? God is speaking to his suffering servant, to the Messiah, to Jesus, and tells him that he will be a light to the nations even to the end of the earth. And this glorious kindness, this sweet news that we can know and be right with our Creator and stand forgiven before God and never have to worry about condemnation, this only happened in the wake of tragedy, in the wake of hard hearts, in an act of strange providence, the callousing of the Jews. God's severity and God's kindness... Sandwiched together. But is God's hardening of the Jews final? Is there replacement of Israel in God's plans? Paul would say, may it never be. Notice the hope that Paul has for his kinsmen in verse 12, right? Now, if the Jews' trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You see the word that's repeated twice in that verse riches for the world riches for gentiles and wealth beyond measure is what we get when we see god delighting to save his own listen the source of our greatest treasure is our right and restored relationship with god and so aren't we overjoyed when we see anybody coming to saving faith in christ because he is our highest delight, our rich treasure. And so how much more glorious will it be when God's hardening of his people will be reversed? When vast numbers of Jews one day will turn and follow their Messiah? But to get there, God's strange providence, his severity, his hardening had to take place first. Listen, we don't always know why God does what he does. We don't always know why children lose their dads young or heart attacks happen or marriages fall apart or cancer strikes. But one thing that I hope you can take from these verses is that no matter the act of God's strange providence, we can and we should always expect God to bring good out of evil for his glory and for the good of his people. So beloved, pray for gospel fruit in the midst of strange providence. Don't get caught up in the horrors of your trial and sometimes they are indeed quite horrible. Don't get caught up in the difficulties of living in a sin-cursed world. Come to expect God to do something great out of sin. In the wake of hardening or in the spite of your failures. Listen, strange providence is still providence. God's sovereignty doesn't stop when life gets hard. See, God's sovereignty and providence are meant to encourage us to be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity, resting our highest hope always in God. And so as you read the news and you come across some tragedy, some terrible event, I want you to learn to pray as we so often pray in church about these things. Pray for the relief of hurting people and for relief from their pain, yes, but we also pray that God would bring gospel fruit. And so as you see God's kindness and severity, may we be patiently hopeful in our trials looking for, praying for God to bring gospel fruit from strange providence. Well, there's a second related prayer request in number two. We're gonna see a second related prayer request that you can get from seeing God's kindness and severity. Soft hearts from good jealousy. You should pray for soft hearts from good jealousy. I like awfully good oxymorons. Like jumbo shrimp, a silent scream, freezer burn, or even icy hot, right? And which was it? Good jealousy is a bit of an oxymoronic too. You might ask, is jealousy ever good? Earlier, Paul uses jealousy in a negative light. Speaking of Israel's rejection of the gospel, the the prophets say, in part, it had to do with their jealousy and their anger. Go back to Romans 10, verse 19. He says, of the Jews, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So all day long, he says in verse 21, I've held out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. So, part of Israel's hardening and their unbelief came as a result of their anger over the words that God said would happen, over the coming salvation of the Gentiles. And in fact, that is part of the reason why they hated Jesus so much. For in Luke chapter 4, 25 through 28, we see that Jesus himself hinted that there would be hope for the Gentiles. He talks about how in the days of Elijah and the days of Elisha, were there not many uh, you know, widows who needed help and you know, needed uh, uh, you know, food, and, and who was Elisha sent to? He was only sent to a, a Gentile widow, right? And his point was, I'm coming to the Gentiles as well. And so literally, people in his hometown of Nazareth wanted to stone Jesus because he talked about God's plan for the Gentiles. This is a type of sinful jealousy that's typical of unbelieving Israel, jealousy and wrath. But Paul is about to show us that God intends to bring about a good jealousy. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Yes, Paul cared deeply about his fellow Jews, but as God would have it, Paul was primarily a missionary to Gentiles, and Rome at this point is predominantly Gentile in in the church. And so Paul writes to Gentiles and thus magnifies his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. And why does he do it? I write to magnify my ministry, verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Oh, beloved, this is the good jealousy we're talking about. Paul wants every Jew to want gospel fruit, like like Gentiles have gospel fruit, and thus be motivated to turn to Christ. He wants every Jew to long for a restored relationship with their God, for forgiveness of their sins, for eternal life, and sometimes the only way those things become attractive is when you see them in someone else, and you're pricked. By a bit of good jealousy. I'll give you some examples of this. And there are names that I could put to each of these, but I won't. When you see a Christian suffering in the hospital and she still has a joyful heart and a zeal to be kind to her nurses, even though they prod and poke her all night long, the world is jealous of her strength to be kind in adverse situations. When you hear the diagnosis, stage four cancer, and you don't wail and despair as if you were one who has no hope, the world is jealous of your peace. When you are arrested for blasphemy against the prophet Muhammad because your father framed you and you still love him, honor him, pray for him, The world is jealous of your ability to forgive. See, we want to make the world jealous of God's work in us. They should want to know about the God who strengthens you to be different, to be holy and righteous and good, no matter the circumstance. So as we navigate through both the happy and strange moments of God's providence, Our goal is to make the world jealous. Jealous of what comes when you belong to God as your heavenly father. And so we must pray that God would soften hearts as they have the good type of jealousy in observing our lives. For certainly many want the benefits of Christianity without having to submit to Christ as king and lord. And so God must do a work to humble the heart of the unbeliever. And when hearts are softened to the gospel, when a good type of jealousy leads someone to Christ, oh, there is always an abundance of joy, no matter who is saved. Look at verse 15. Again, Paul's goal is to magnify his ministry to the Gentiles in order to somehow make his fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection, verse 15 says, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? See, there's coming a day when many Jews will have good jealousy and turn to Christ, and they will have new life from the dead. And that is always a cause for great joy. So whether the severity or the kindness of God is on display in life, let's pray for soft hearts that flow out of a good jealousy. There's a third prayer request that you can have when you see God's kindness and severity. Number three, humility as you remember your unholy history you Should pray for humility as you remember your unholy history At this point the Apostle Paul introduces an illustration that will go on really into next week's text as well. It's an illustration of grafting Now I don't know what type of gardener you are, but I'm sure some of you have green green thumbs. Basically, you look at a plant and it blossoms. You have this ability. I'm sure some of you have grafted trees in your time off, and you know all the tricks of the trade of grafting. You probably think this is such an obvious and and beautiful and wonderful example. Now, there are others among us who glance at their garden and it happens to wither. A tomato harvest of two from your four plants is a bountiful harvest for you. Perhaps even grass is hard growing under your care, but You probably have no idea what grafting is or what goes into grafting, and you'll probably never even attempt to graft anything. So for the non-agricultural minded among us, I looked up a video on grafting to help us figure out this illustration. The video made grafting seem so incredibly easy and and wonderful and and a good thing that you can easily do. I'm not sure I will do it, but it did. All you do is take little shoots off of a healthy tree in the early spring and then attach them to a similar size shoot coming off one of your trees. Special way you splice it. You kind of have to, like, splice in the middle and, you know, splice it another way and, you know, add out some sap so that they kind of sap together. But then you basically bandage this thing up and voila, it's supposed to grow. I think it's pretty Cool. And in a couple of years, it's supposed to start producing fruit and, and you can have one tree with multiple types of fruit. And I don't think you can have like an orange tree and an apple tree, but, but I think you can have like two different types of apples. Like you could have your gala and then your Granny Smith. And you, know, you could have one tree, two different things. It's a profound and beautiful thing. But the nutrients of your Franken tree all flow from the root of the original tree. So Paul's illustration is that the church now is grafted into the Israel tree. Look at verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Now I know you're saying this is not a tree. Why did you talk about a tree and then you start talking about dough here? Well listen, this is the only time Paul mentions dough in this analogy, but it's helpful, okay? Yeasted dough is often divided. Part of it is baked and what do you do with the other part? You make new dough and you take it and you blend it together and it creates this new dough and you take a part of it and it's kind of an ongoing starter dough, I think, that you can have as a result of this. And so all the properties of the first batch get melded into the second, so there's really no distinction. Now, Paul says, There's that dough analogy. I'm gonna make the same analogy to a tree, and I'm gonna run with this tree analogy for a lot longer than I did the dough analogy. So there's the dough. Now he's gonna move it on to the tree. Verse 16. And if the root is holy, he continues, so are the branches. So he's going to continue, verse 17. But but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. First, notice how this goes really against the idea of grafting that we just learned about. The purpose of grafting is to get a good branch from a good fruit-producing tree and put it onto an existing tree to get better fruit to come out, right? But here, what's he doing? He's taking a wild, probably non-producing olive tree and grafting it onto an otherwise good tree. So notice there's something odd and unique about this grafting analogy that Paul has, and that this tree then is supported by the good root, not this wild olive branch. And So many of the branches of hardened Israel also, you'll see, were broken off, But but that doesn't mean that the Gentile wild olive branch grafted in should think of themselves as superior. Look at verse 18 again, right? Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So, church, remember, you're supported by Israel, not vice versa. I think the root that continues to nourish it really is the foundation of Israel, which, of course, is God's revealed word, the Old Testament. And so as we study, we must not reinterpret everything in the Old Testament to push out Israel or take the promises made to Israel and shift them onto the church. Gentile worldviews come from pagan, unholy roots. And Christianity is built on the Old Testament, the root of Jewish scriptures. But Paul imagines, imagines some pushback here, doesn't he? Look at verse 19. He says, well, well, then you will say, what branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in? He imagines us Gentiles looking for a reason for spiritual pride. For assuming that we are part of God's family because of something inherently good and beautiful and lovely within us. Aren't the Jews the bad guys, we might think? Weren't they broken off because they weren't any good? And Gentiles, weren't we grafted in because we're better, because we understood this, we grafted, we put our faith in Jesus Christ? And so is the idea. Paul responds, verse 20, doesn't he? What well, is true, they were broken off so that you might be grafted in. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Yes, God in his perfect, righteous, and severe judgment saw fit to remove many, if not most, of the Jews because they didn't come to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But that isn't the main point of the text. He's talking to us Gentiles. He needs to remind us we aren't grafted in because we are good. We are grafted in because of God's kindness. Because of God's free gift to us. So, verse 18, right? Do not be arrogant towards the branches. Have you not heard all that I've written earlier? You are grafted into the family of God by faith alone. Boasting and arrogance should be excluded because of what God has done to us and for us through Jesus Christ. Right, he says back in Romans 3, 27 and 28, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, even our faith, in essence, is not ours to give, but granted to us by God. So again, we cannot boast, we cannot be proud that we put our faith where it needed to go. It's very simple, the application of this text. We need to pray for humility because we remember our unholy history. We are scraggly, wild, unfruitful olive trees. We are cracked, marred image bearers of God and we desperately need to be restored by the power of the gospel. And even if you're a 10th generation Christian and you can somehow trace back your Christian heritage, you have a rich history we still realize that if we scratch down deep enough, we were not the ones preserving God's word, the Torah. Our ancestors didn't know God. In the words of Romans 1, 22 and 23, we were those claiming to be wise and became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So back in Romans 11, Pride and arrogance have no place in the Christian life because you only, you only, verse 20, what does it say? You only stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. You see, the opposite of pride is fear. Fear holy, right, reverential fear of God. And so we pray to take off pride and to put on right fear. And that informs our last prayer request as we see God's kindness and severity. Number four, we should pray that we would fear because your Christian heritage is tenuous. Fear because your Christian heritage is tenuous. Your heritage is something that belongs to you, inherited from your ancestors. It could be land or wealth or even your national identity or cultural traditions and even your religion. But when you come to see the severity of God towards Israel, towards the many branches that he broke off, the right response is reverential fear, a sense of awe and worship over his sustaining grace. And you know what? We can't assume it's all going to last. So we come to the text And that we looked at at the beginning. Let's get a running start into it. The end of verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut. So this does not mean that any genuine Christian can lose his or her salvation. Paul just said very clearly, Romans 8, 38 and 39, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing can separate us from Christ, but this text does mean that our Christian heritage is not guaranteed. I mean, just consider some of the oldest families in America and some of the oldest cities in America. They started with such religious fervor and, and Puritan ideals and when they landed in New England, but, but those same cities that they founded, like, like Boston and much of the eastern seaboard, are among the most unchurched in the United States today. Oh, sure, there are plenty of old church buildings, but not a whole lot of churches So pray for holy fear because your Christian heritage is tenuous. Think about the implications of this, right? The implications for family worship are rich. I mean, how much more should we be invested in pursuing family worship with our children while they're in our homes for the short while that we have them because we want them to come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior and to be sustained in their faith through their whole lives. So what do you show your kids is the most important thing in your home are you regularly reading the word speaking of Jesus praying as a family and i'm not talking about those rote repeat after me prayers but pouring out your heart to god prayers are you prioritizing your church family and gathering with them regularly are you prioritizing things like like going to care group and having discipleship and accountability See, praying for holy fear has massive implications on how you run your family. But praying for holy fear also has massive implications for cultural Christians. For those who cling on to church because they think that's just what they do. They should. But in reality, the love of the world provides all the sap and the joys of life. So God tells us, of, warns us of, this love of the world in 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with the desires, but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. And just a verse later, he describes the one who loves the world more than Christ. Verse 19. Those who love the world, well, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So, beloved, there are dead branches in every. Church. Branches that showed signs of life to begin with but never truly belonged. And they will be pruned in God's timing. So if you think fear has no place in the Christian life, or if you think God is all kindness with no severity, then perhaps we need to reread Matthew 13 and the parable of the soils. There's four soils, right? One, no sign of growth. The path, clearly not a Christian. One, beautiful, rich soil produces a crop a hundredfold. But there's two other soils, aren't there? There's the rocky soil. Shows signs of life. Looks like they might be a Christian, but the cares of the world and the pressures of the world burn them out, showing that they never were with Christ. And the thorny soil, where the cares and concerns and the love of the world chokes out all desires for Christ, showing that they never were a Christian, designed only to be burned and pruned by God. So we should rightly pray for a holy fear of God, because your Christian heritage is tenuous. See, God is not a kind old man following us like a puppy dog. He doesn't sprinkle us with good fairy dust in our lives so that maybe, just maybe, we might pay him a little bit of attention and every once in a while kind of give him some praise. God is kinder than that because he is also severe, perfect, and holy, and just. And in his severity, God crushed his son In our place so that we could have a restored relationship with him God poured out his wrath for your sins on his son while he hung on the cross so that we could have forgiveness and enter into heaven for all eternity the greatest kindness of God is seen in the severity of the cross and so as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper let us remember the kindness and the severity of God. Bow with me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be those who as we are desirous of wanting to worship you and, and walk with you, help us to be pushed towards your word. That we would be men and women of your word, men and women who see regularly as we read throughout scriptures, your kindness and your severity. Lord, that we would be able to look back at the cross work of Christ and see your kindness towards us and your severity towards sin colliding on that cross. And Lord, even as we prepare to take the supper, Lord, we also, we look up, we remember that you now have access, that we now have access to God. Lord, what a glorious and beautiful truth this is. Because of your kindness, because of your severity in punishing Christ in our place, we can bring our requests, we can bring our burdens, we can bring everything directly into your presence. Lord, but this feast is also a time of introspection, where we look within and we realize that we need to put on a sense of godly honoring fear of you, recognizing that we ought to bow our knees in humble adoration of our maker. And we ought to confess our sins, not come pridefully, arrogantly, thinking that we deserve this. This is ours, and we, we have every right to be uh, with you. Lord, if we have any right, it's because you gave it to us in Christ. Lord, we also look around as those who are profoundly humbled we see the many partaking of the one body and we celebrate how god has brought us together we celebrate that god's work of salvation extends to us from all over the world some of us even here have multiple generations where you have seen fit to bless us and we are grateful for the rich christian heritage that is ours we also look forward We take the supper, we anticipate the great day when you will come and you return and we look forward to that day and we want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, help us to remember your goodness, your kindness, and your severity, and your wrath that you poured out on Christ in our behalf, knowing that it is our greatest hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.